James chapter 4, we begin with verse 11, where James writes, Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother, speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? Go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now ye rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Amen. We'll end our reading at the end of the chapter. And we know that the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. It seems that in this portion of James' epistle, the portion we've just read, the author is dealing with two different sins. Verses 11 and 12, he's dealing with the sin of speaking evil or judging a brother. And in verses 13 through 15, he's dealing with the sin of making plans apart from any consideration for the will of God. At first glance, these two subjects may seem to be completely unrelated, but in fact, they do have something in common. They are both actually different symptoms of the same sin. And before I tell you what that sin is, let's reflect for a moment first on the context of this section of James chapter 4. In the first three chapters of James, we could say that we find how the gospel affects every area of the Christian's life. I think James brings that out more clearly than perhaps any other author. When you read the words of Paul in uh, his Corinthian epistle that all things are become new, well, you might say that James provides for us one of the best commentaries on what that means. Everything becomes new. Your entire life is impacted by the gospel. And that's basically the entire book of James in a nutshell. So in the course of this book, you read how the gospel affects the Christian's view of God. The gospel affects the Christian's view of his trials. It affects his view of others. It affects his view of sin. It affects what he does and what he doesn't do. It affects how he thinks and how he speaks. This is why Paul could write to the Romans that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Believers' lives are impacted by the gospel. And the point that James is forcefully emphasizing 
is that where this power is not being manifested, you have cause to question whether or not such a person has truly been saved. There are those that profess to have faith, but their actions seem to be unaffected by their faith. Has that kind of faith really saved them? Well, James tells us, assuredly not. And he then cites two examples of characters in the Old Testament whose faith was demonstrated by their deeds. So all of these various areas of our lives are affected by the gospel, and this is what makes for what James calls in chapter 1 and verse 27, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father. In fact, if you look at that verse and underscore it, I think that could be taken as a key text to the book of James. Here is pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father. James further teaches us that it is possible for a man's religion to start out being pure and undefiled and yet degenerate into impure and defiled religion. And this degenerative process is traceable in large measure to love for the world. In his forthright fashion, James condemns these things. So we read in verse 4 from chapter 4, from the, uh, the chapter we've read from today, and, and, and note how blunt and straightforward James is. That's why I say this is a sharp epistle when he writes, The adulterers and adulteresses. Know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. You see what I mean when I say James doesn't pull any punches? Here's an ironic statement in the New Testament. It is actually possible for a careless Christian who has at one time surrendered himself to Christ, laid down his arms of rebellion against God, and has been reconciled to God through Christ. It's actually possible for this kind of Christian, through spiritual negligence, to drift across no man's land, as it were, and put himself back in the place he first was before he gained a saving interest in Christ. He finds himself in the same place spiritually that King David in the Old Testament found himself. You may recall the narrative how during that time when David fled from Saul and he took shelter among the Philistines, the time came when David and his men were on the brink of joining themselves to the Philistine army and were ready to square off against God's people and against Christ's cause. No telling whether or not David would have gone through with that or not. The Philistines didn't think it was worth the risk, and they sent him away. But to be in that position, to be in the position as uh, seemingly aligning yourself with God's enemies against God's cause. It is possible, spiritually speaking, for us as Christians to be in that place. 
This is an example then of pure religion that becomes impure. This is an example of undefiled religion that becomes defiled. And fortunately for us all, God has made provision for our carelessness and our tendency to drift. I love the words we have in verse 6 of our chapter in James 4, which says, He giveth more grace. He giveth more grace. Thank God for that. Thank the Lord he continues to minister grace to our souls even when our religion becomes tainted by sin. Now it's in connection with this theme of spiritual drift that I want us to consider the second half of this fourth chapter of James this morning. In the verses we've read, James is describing something else that leads a believer from pure religion to defiled religion. Are you ready for what it is? I'm going to give you a word now that might seem like a big theological word to some of you. I want you to note it. I want you to learn it so that you can, in turn, avoid it like the plague. That word is autonomy. Autonomy, not a hard word to spell, not a real long word, but one that you don't hear all the time. Do you know what autonomy means? I was actually drawn to this text through a book I was reading entitled Chosen by God, in which the author was dealing with the matter of free will. And he very uh, succinctly, I think, explains the matter of free will Um, the fact that there is such a thing as free will. And when it comes to considering uh, our sins, uh, the thing that is really um, wretched, you might say, is not so much a notion of free will as it is the notion of autonomy. Autonomy is the sin. comes from a Greek word, autos, which means self, and namas, which means law. Self-law. That's autonomy. The condition or quality of being self-governing. Now, in some senses, this can actually be a good thing. In the political sense, in a civic sense, we are an autonomous nation, you could say. We govern ourselves. We're not governed by foreign governments. We are independent. We're coming up on a day soon when we're going to celebrate um, the fact that we are autonomous, an independent nation. We declared independence from England. We became an autonomous nation. So that's in the political or the civic realm. In the spiritual realm, however, it's not a good thing. In fact, it's sin. It's a declaration of independence from God. You could say that this was the first sin committed by Adam and Eve. Some folks, you know, question how serious the first sin was. What's the big deal about taking a bite out of a piece of fruit? I mean, if your child... Uh, puts his hand in the cookie jar and takes a cookie after you've told him not to, are you going to cut off his hand or sentence him to death? 
You know, doesn't the penalty far outweigh uh, the infraction, the reasoning goes, isn't the penalty a little severe in comparison to the deed? The thing that magnifies what may seem on the surface to be no big deal was the fact that by the simple act of eating the forbidden fruit, Adam and Eve were declaring their independence from God. We won't have God to rule over us, they were saying in effect. We won't have anybody outside of ourselves telling us what to do and what not to do. We will decide that for ourselves. That's what it means to be autonomous in that spiritual sense, governed by self-law. This has been the declaration of sinful men ever since that time. We rule ourselves. We answer to no one. We do what we want, and we do it when we want. We do our own thing. This is how autonomy manifests itself culturally uh, in our day. Now, we can understand this, I think, as it pertains to fallen man. This is what we became as a result of our sin. This is what we were given over to. Each individual has become a god to himself. But in the portion of Scripture we've read just now, we see that Christians can defile their religion by falling prey to the same thing. Look again at the words of verse 11. Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. You remember what I said a moment ago. The two subjects James is dealing with are symptoms of the same thing. In the first instance, the Christian sets himself up to be the judge. In the next instance, he sets himself up to be the king or the ruler of the universe. Look at verse 13. Go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain, whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. You see there a sense of um, rebellion that uh, plans are made with no place for God in the making of those plans. I want us to look at this matter in the moments that remain this morning, this matter of autonomy, and I want to do so with the aim of convincing you that autonomy, the way I've now described it, autonomy must be avoided and must be overcome. Consider with me, first of all, then, the sinfulness of autonomy. The sinfulness of autonomy. And let's look at both of the instances before us in these verses and consider why autonomy is sinful. Look with me again, if you would, at verses 11 and 12 from chapter 4. Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgest the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver 
who is able to save and to destroy? Who art thou that judgest another? Now, in this instance, one brother is literally speaking against another brother. He is judging that brother. And I am very much aware this morning that some people are willing to take this kind of notion and run with it way beyond what God intends. If there is one verse in the Bible that all the world knows, they may not know any other, but they do know this one. I don't know if they can cite the reference, but I'm pretty sure they know the words. It's in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, Judge not that ye be not judged. And those that are unfamiliar with their Bibles will take such a text and use it to ban moral discernment altogether. You are not allowed to call abortion sin. And of course, I think we've seen, by the way, uh, the reactions have sprung up in various cities in the, no in the nation that uh, this is exactly what people are shouting from the streets. You are not allowed to call abortion sin. You are not allowed to call homosexuality sin. You are not allowed to call marital infidelity or cohabitation sin. If you choose not to engage in those practices, that's fine for you, but don't take it upon yourself to denounce such practices in the lives of others, because if you do, you're judging, and that verse in Matthew 7, verse 1 says, Judge not, that ye be not judged. I don't know if they realize it, but the people that interpret and apply Matthew 7 and verse 1 that way reduce the text to an absurdity. And if you look at that verse in its context, it becomes very easy to see that that kind of application that's drawn from it by the world simply can't apply. You go down a few verses. I won't have you turn to it now. I'll read it for you. Uh, look at it yourself. It's in Matthew 7 and verse 6, where Christ says, Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn again and rend you. Well, that kind of calls for discernment, doesn't it? Or judgment in the sense of discerning. Moral discernment. There can actually be instances, you know, in which it can be improper to even give out the gospel of salvation. I can remember an instance of this from my days in the printing industry. There was a man where I worked that on certain occasions would take it upon himself to mock the whole idea of salvation and the truth of the Bible. He would ridicule the idea that a sin deserved judgment. He would openly make fun of the idea that a man needed to be saved. And in such instances, when he was attempting to wax eloquent in his unbelief, my usual response would be to keep quiet and ignore him. I might even shake my head and turn away from him. It would make a mockery of the gospel in that instance to try to win him to Christ under those circumstances. 
Now, I don't think it would be right for me to make a blanket judgment about this man as if to say that I've permanently taken him to be a dog. There were other cases, actually, when I could witness to him and did. I would only avoid giving that which was holy to him when his conduct and character were unbecoming to that which I was trying to give him. So the point I'm trying to make now is only that the verse in Matthew 7, 1 and in James 4, 11 are not banning the use of moral discernment or forbidding the condemnation of practices that are clearly condemned by God's word. Well, what practice is being prohibited then? I think the verse itself in James 4, 11 shows us what practice is being banned. Look again at what it says in verse 11. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. Here, then, is an instance of autonomy when the Christian sets up himself to be the ultimate judge He's no longer under the law himself, but he's above it in such a way as to suggest that he himself is the lawgiver rather than God. And you know, there's a tempting tendency in all of us to want to set up what might be our own personal standards as the standards of God's law. Paul describes this practice in Colossians 2. He calls it will worship. It's often manifested by a set of standards that Paul summarizes in the previous verses as touch not, taste not, handle not. The easiest way I know to illustrate such a practice is by looking at standards, say for instance, that you might find in a Christian school or a Christian college, anybody who's attended places like Bob Jones University or Pensacola Christian College can tell you that these colleges maintain rigorous standards of conduct as they endeavor to train young people to live for Christ. I don't have any problem with that. Never had any problem with that when I was a student at BJ. I don't know exactly how things stand today, but in my day, you wouldn't find televisions in the dorm rooms. They were not allowed to dress in slovenly fashion when they attended classes. In the morning, men had to wear neckties. In the afternoon, they didn't have to wear neckties, but neither could they wear blue jeans or collarless shirts they had to be clean-shaven, and the conduct between men and women was carefully regulated. All of those things, I think, were very good in the context of training young Christians to be decent and upright. Where the practice degenerates, however, and becomes defiled religion, 
is when the student handbook is taken to be the gauge of Christian conduct in a broader sphere than a training institution so that it becomes a sin to have a television set at all. I'm aware of a denomination that used to have that as a precept to uh, joining their church. You have a TV in your home, you cannot be a member of this church under those circumstances. I can remember Ian Paisley sharing with us an instance of when he was visiting a family, and that family evidently was self-conscious about having a television when Ian Paisley came to visit them, so they covered it up. They put a sheet or something over it, and I remember Ian Paisley making the remark that the devil's tail was still sticking out from underneath. You could see the plug. <laughs> where you'd plug it into the wall. He said that facetiously. Um, Christian conduct, then. All of those things can be very good in the context of training young Christians, but like I say, where it degenerates is where the student handbook, uh, the, the precepts, what have you, uh, become the standard across Christianity. Now, don't misunderstand me here. We probably could all do without television sets. There's entirely too much trash and too much time wasting put into watching television. And it's good for a young person to learn to prove to himself that he really can live without one. I don't have the authority, however, to condemn the practice outright. I do have the authority to condemn much of what a person may see, but I don't have the authority to brand the practice itself as inherently evil. To do so is to put myself above God's law, and I become the lawgiver. Now, I can cite some examples of this kind of practice that's found in churches. I know of a church that used to consider it a sin for a woman to have her hair cut at all. Women, after all, are supposed to have long hair. Their hair is their glory, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 11. And when it comes to the question of how long is long, how short is short, well, this church would answer by saying simply, if the woman never cuts her hair, she doesn't ever have to wrestle with that question. <laughs> I remember a preacher who used to look upon beards as being sinful. He made an association, which is probably a valid one at the time, between beards and the appearances of hippies in the 60s and 70s. You have a beard, you're part of that culture, or at least you're associating with it. This man's favorite verse in the Bible on this issue, it seems, was in Genesis 41 and verse 14, referring to Joseph appearing before Pharaoh. It says in that verse, Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him hastily out of the dungeon, and he shaved himself and changed his raiment and came in unto Pharaoh. This settled the issue in the mind of that preacher. It made a lot of the fact that Joseph shaved before he went before Pharaoh he didn't make near as much out of the fact that in another section of the Old Testament, we have the account of 
two of King David's servants being humiliated by their enemies. Part of their humiliation was that they were apprehended and half their beards were shaved off. And when King David visited them, he told them to remain in seclusion until their beards grew back. He didn't tell them to shave off the other half. That passage evidently was not important, not as important to this preacher as the example of Joseph who shaved before going before Pharaoh. And I'm afraid there's a potential propensity in us all to set up our own little idiosyncrasies as if they were the standards of God's law. And this practice works both ways. It used to be that if you attended church meetings dressed informally, you would be frowned upon. Today, a very common notion in contemporary-minded churches is that if you feel compelled to look at what used to be referred to as your Sunday best for church meetings or whatever, you must be some sort of legalist. Seems like the pendulum swings back and forth, doesn't it? I really caught on to that the last time I was in Northern Ireland. Wednesday night prayer meeting. Boy, the men... Shirt, tie, coat, three-piece suits, some of them. That was the norm. But my, what a difference between our brethren in Ulster and what we find here in the States. I dare say that even in a group as small as ours, we could find the propensity to practice the very thing that James is now describing as making our personal standards the law. I remember one dear brother... He's he's now home in heaven, who held to a personal standard that was different from most everyone else. And I must frankly admit, he could defend this standard from Scripture. He would cite Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 5 as the basis for a standard. The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all that do so are abomination unto the Lord thy God. And I remember this man used to say to me, What would people think if I showed up in church wearing a dress? And I said to him in return, well, as long as it wasn't white with pink polka dots on it, maybe you could get away with it. I was being facetious, and I have to say about this brother that he held his view charitably. He made no attempt to foist his application, uh, his standard on others, but he heard his standard actually criticized as if he were some sort of legalist for personally having it practiced in his home. That was as unfair to him as he would have been to impose that application on others. And let me say here, while we're on the topic of Deuteronomy 22 and verse 5, that it certainly makes it plain that the principle that is at all times to govern our appearance is gender distinction, which is to come not at the expense of modesty. And if there is any potential for your gender distinction being open to question, then your thinking as regards your appearance probably needs to be reconsidered and adjusted. 
My point in all this is to demonstrate how pure religion can degenerate into defiled religion when we turn our own pet peeves into law. James tells us that when we engage in such a practice, we become autonomous. Or in other words, we place ourselves above God's law. We become the judges of the law rather than the doers of the law. So that's the first manifestation of autonomy. The next manifestation of it is given to us in verses 13 to 15. Look at those verses now, if you would, in James 4. Go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. Here is a form of autonomy in which a man ascribes to himself more freedom than he really possesses. He makes his plans apart from any consideration of God's will. He fails to take into account what James has said earlier in this epistle, back in chapter 1 and verse 17, that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Every day you live has come to you as a gracious gift from God. Every breath you take comes to you as a gift from God. Every beat of your heart, you could say, comes to you by God's grace. This kind of autonomy manifests itself when the believer takes for granted the blessings that God bestows upon him day by day and moment by moment. And this kind of thinking demonstrates pure religion gone amok because its life lived with no reference to God. So these are a couple of instances of the practice and the sinfulness of autonomy, placing ourselves above God's law, placing ourselves above God's providence. Well, let's consider finally then in closing the solution to this autonomy. The solution. And look with me now, if you would, at the first part of verse 12. And then verse 15, in verse 12, first part of the verse, it says, There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Verse 15, For that ye ought to say, If the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. The practice that links these two verses together very simply and stands in contrast to autonomy is the practice of submission. We submit to the one lawgiver who has the power to save and destroy. In a subordinate sense, we are all under various kinds of authority. There is a structure of authority in our homes, an authority structure to our city, to our country. There's a structure, an authority structure in our church. But ultimately, we are all under the authority of God. 
whether or not a person answers to me or answers to you may be very insignificant, relatively speaking. At the end of the day, each one of us will answer to God. Writing to the Romans, Paul says in Romans 14, But why dost thou judge thy brother, or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Oh, let that truth govern what you personally do and don't do. For the believer, it will not be a judgment to condemnation. By the grace of God, the judge will also be the believer's advocate. Thank God for that. But believers will learn on that day how much they need the advocacy of their Savior. How many ill-spoken words will come to light on that day? How many unnecessary judgments will come to light in which the Savior will hold forth his nail-scarred hands to plead for your forgiveness? Oh, it will be a humbling time, but thank God for the words in James that tell us our lawgiver is able to save. The knowledge that the lawgiver is our Savior, who has the authority and power to save and destroy, should teach us to walk circumspectly in this present evil world, aiming for God's glory and aiming to do good to our brothers and sisters in Christ. We submit ourselves, therefore, to Christ. He is the judge. We endeavor to study and apply what he's revealed in his word, and we strive to apply his word exactly as he would have us apply it, taking nothing from it, adding nothing to it. And as verse 15 indicates, we live our lives in reference to God. We may, in the space that God allows with the wisdom God imparts, plan our lives on a day-to-day basis, but we do so with an aim toward his glory, and we do so with a consciousness that our lives are short, and we dare not live our lives as if we are independent from God. To do so is to live by ungodly pride. This is what verse 16 tells us. But now ye rejoice in your boastings, All such rejoicing is evil. And so we have the sin of autonomy, and we have the solution to autonomy. We live with a conscious dependence upon Christ. Our lives should be expressions of gratitude to him who lived for us and died for us and rose again. This is pure religion. This is undefiled religion. This is the kind of religion that can bring contentment to believer and bring unity to the people of God. James draws a conclusion to his teachings on this subject in verse 17, a good word to close on. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, 
To him it is sin. By submitting ourselves to Christ, we learn how to do good. And you see the emphasis again that is so prominent in James. He really is calling for external action that is consistent with internal frame of our hearts. If our hearts are right, and they assuredly will be so long as we submit to Christ, then let your conduct reflect the state of your heart by doing good. May God himself give us the grace to submit to him and the enabling power that strengthens us to do good. And oh, may we avoid autonomy as we live in happy and glorious submission to our Savior. Let's close then in prayer. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this time to a close, we thank thee for thy grace. We thank thee, Lord, for the grace you give us even when we fall into the pit of becoming autonomous and acting as if we are the judges rather than recognizing that God is the judge. This is a part of our fallen nature. Oh Lord, we pray for the needed grace to overcome it when it manifests itself. Give us the wisdom, O oh Lord, to exercise moral discernment, but give us the humility that's needed to keep the grace of God flowing to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.